Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, I say this every time I'm here, and it's been a while, but uh, one of the best parts of these events are your questions, and, and I really mean that when I say that. So after we're done talking and kind of figuring out a, a little about this topic, if we've not addressed something or you have a specific question, feel free to come forward and ask that, and we'll accommodate. Uh, Yasha, thank you so much for being here. Uh, first of all, can you kind of give us a primer on this book? Uh, what did you tell in this and why? Sure. So first of all, I'm really distracted by this bell. <laughs> I, I, grew, I grew up in Germany, and that's a country where people laugh once a year at carnival. <laughs> and whenever somebody makes a joke, at the end of a punchline, they go, ta-ta! So I sort of want to, like, every time I say something funny, I'm going to hit this thing. Um, <laughs> it can only go downhill from here. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can you can do the you can interpret the puns. That's good. You lived in Germany, so you know we I don't did. have a sense of humor. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right. Hilarious. So let's talk about the book. Um, <laughs> so, look, I think we're in a political moment that's really serious. Um, I grew up in. Uh, a political moment in which my assumption was that yeah, there's some democracies in the world. Um, that might collapse because they are relatively poor, they went very well entrenched, they don't have a long democratic history. Yeah, there's some authoritarian governments uh, that might remain in power even as they get more affluent, think of everywhere from China to Saudi Arabia. But there's a set of countries like the United States, like Germany where I grew up, in which we can really rely on the idea that 20 or 30 years from now we'll still have a democracy. And as I was starting to look around the world, not just after <coughs> the last presidential elections, but also before, I was starting to, to wonder whether that was still true. I saw that more and more people actually didn't give great importance to living in a democracy. So in the United States, for example, among older Americans born in the 1930s and 1940s, over two-thirds say it's essential to live in a democracy. Among younger Americans born since 1980, less than one-third do. 20 years ago, 1 in 16 Americans were open to army rule. Now, 1 in 6 are. Among young and affluent Americans, it's actually gone from 6% 20 years ago to about 35% the last time we have data. That's a nearly six-fold increase. So we saw all of these worrying developments, and we also saw the rise of these illiberal populists in many different parts of the world, people who don't just have this or that political opinion. When I say liberal today, I don't mean liberal and conservative. I mean uh, commitment to basic things like the rule of law. People who don't accept that, who see their political adversaries as enemies, who say, I will keep people in suspense about whether I'll accept the outcome of this election, who say, I think my political adversary should be locked up people like that. And so when you take all of that together, it seems to me like the assumptions that political scientists have made that our democracies will continue to be safe um, should really be in doubt. And so what I argue in the book, essentially, is that liberal democracy is falling apart into its constituent parts. But on the one hand, you have political systems that don't respond to popular views enough. And on the other hand, you have a rise of these populists who really threaten the survival of some of the most basic parts of our political system. So that's a very, very brief overview. 
I wonder if you can talk more about how you get from um, essentially ignorance of certain people about what it means to live in a democracy or other political systems to democracy is dying or democracy could be failing, especially in the United States that we like to think we have strong institutions, but you're saying they could be endangered. Well, take a country like Hungary. Hungary, of course, does not have a deep and long democratic history of the United States. There are many important differences there. But five or 10 years ago, political scientists, people who studied Central Europe, were confidently pronouncing that democracy in Hungary is consolidated, which is fancy talk for saying it's safe. It's going to continue being a democracy. Well, what happened? What happened is that somebody who said, listen, the only reason why we have political problems in this country is that the political elite is corrupt and self-serving. All you need to do is to trust me to do the right thing, right? I actually speak for the people, and anybody who disagrees with me is legitimate. That kind of figure was elected prime minister of a country. And what did he do once he became prime minister? He started to blame the political opposition for being traitors rather than acknowledging that you can have legitimate political differences. He started to attack the state media for spreading propaganda against him and fake news. He started to attack independent institutions like the judiciary for being enemies of the Hungarian people. And over a number of years, he took more and more control of those institutions so that now you have an election coming up this Sunday in Hungary, which is no longer free nor fair. The Electoral Commission in Hungary, which is dominated by the stooges of Viktor Orban, has assessed huge fines on each of the opposition party for spurious campaign violations, while miraculously neglecting to investigate the party of a ruling prime minister, Viktor Orban. And so the only party that can effectively campaign right now is the party of a prime minister who also gets unconditional support from state propaganda media and the private media, which have now been bought up by his friends. Now, the United States isn't there yet, but you see each of the elements of Viktor Orban's course of action in the rhetoric deployed every day by our president. Just think of some of the shocking tweets that he has been, I mean, there's many shocking tweets to choose from, um, but think of his shocking tweets he's been uh, writing in the last days about the Washington Post. I think uh, uh, maybe we're naive as Americans to think this, but I wonder if you can talk about it, that one of the big differences I think of when I compare Hungary to the United States, for example, is Donald Trump could be removed from office. We have institutions which are still capable of removing a sitting president, no matter what he says. So. Like, to get to the point where we're saying we're on the verge of autocracy, like if he just tweets the wrong thing one day, isn't that a bridge too far? Well, the Hungarians have institutions that can get rid of Viktor Orban very easily. All it takes if, is a bare majority of Hungarian MPs to vote a motion of no confidence. But Viktor Orban has very effective control of his political party, so that's not going to happen. Sure, we could have impeachment in the United States if you had... 50% of a House, that might happen after the midterms, and two-thirds of a Senate. But what's really striking is that despite all of the ways in which Donald Trump has shot himself in the foot, he has consolidated control of the Republican Party, with a couple of admirable exceptions like Jeff Flake, 
who has immediately become irrelevant in conservative politics because he stood up to Donald Trump, everybody has actually lined up against him. They watched Stormy Daniels give interviews on the news on one Sunday and then vote uh, out of deep concern for Christian values for Donald Trump's political agenda on a Monday. So the idea that, yes, of course, the Constitution gives us the tools to defend the rule of law and defend the separation of powers, but it, give the, it gives those tools to flesh and blood human beings. And the flesh and blood human beings who have a greatest responsibility for, to, for standing up to abuses of power in our system have turned out to be pretty self-serving and pretty craven. So yes, of course Donald Trump could be impeached. It's much more difficult to impeach Donald Trump than it would be to remove Viktor Orban from office. But I'm not holding my breath on either one or the other thing happening anytime soon. One of the things you hear from populists in all countries, really, is this appeal to national security. And we hear this in our country, and you also hear it in Hungary and other Western European nations, especially after the um, uh, refugee crisis from Syria. Hungary was faced with thousands and thousands and thousands of refugees. So the government felt like they had to respond in the name of national security. Now, in your mind, when does that go too far? When does it become authoritarian, and when is it just worrying about your actual national security? Well, look, I think it should absolutely be part of democratic contestation to argue about what kind of immigration we should have and how much immigration we should have. I might disagree with some of the people who are, as you've guessed, I tend to be more on the liberal side, but I really think that the things I'm talking about are not a partisan issue. We should all have a commitment to the basic rules and norms of a democratic system, which we've respected um, mostly for 250 years. That shouldn't be a matter of whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, and shouldn't be a matter of whatever view you have on immigration. Now look, on immigration, I tend to be a little bit more liberal, but I think it is absolutely fair to the debate, for example, whether we want to have more or less family-based migration and more or less skill-based migration. There's nothing wrong in having different kinds of opinions about this. What's not okay is to discount a judge who has Mexican heritage as un-American. What's not okay is to say that if you have one particular religion, that means you can't be an American. So what we have to stand absolutely firm on is the fact that anybody who is in this country legally and anybody who is a citizen in this country is American irrespective of whether they're brown or black and irrespective of whether they're Muslim or Jewish or Hindu. And what really worries me is the ways in which this administration has sometimes violated those basic principles. We can disagree about how many, you know, how we want to fortify the border or how many people should be allowed to come in for family-based migration. Those are legitimate political differences. But we cannot disagree, or we shouldn't disagree, about whether somebody gets to be an American and treated with the same respect as any other judge, whether or not her parents happen to be Mexican. There is a, a serious shift in demographics being seen both in the United States, which is well underway, but also in Western European countries. Uh, and you have this conflict of changing demographics to a historical majority cultural identity that, that countries, um, some people in countries see. 
uh, I think of France with the debate over the burqa ban or headscarf ban, uh, that there's this conflict saying, well, that's not what, sh what France is about. That's not what we're about, which is really just this historical conception, Christian-based rule of law, I guess. Um, how much of that shift in what it means to be from a place is contributing to this rise of both populism but also this angst among electorates? So generally speaking, um, I think people are tempted to just look at their own local context and trying to understand why we have as populism now. But when you look around the world, you see a very similar set of phenomena rising in all these different countries. So let's talk for a moment of what a populist actually is, right? Because it's not obvious why we should be using this term. As you may have noticed, our president doesn't appear to be overly fond of Muslims. Um, another person who's often called a populist, Recep Erdogan in Turkey, isn't overly fond of anybody who's not a Muslim. So we don't have that in common. Why should we call them both populists? Right? There are some populists who are very right-wing economically and who want to um, slash the welfare state and um, ease government regulation on businesses. There's other populists, like, say, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who are very left-wing economically and want to expand the welfare state and control businesses. Right. So what, why do they have something in common? Well, I think it goes back to some of the things I was saying about Viktor Orban, which are obviously also true about Donald Trump. It is people who say, I alone speak for the people. I am your voice, as Donald Trump said, I believe in this city. So just give me a little bit of power. Just trust me a little bit. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix everything. Well, then they get into power. And it turns out that things are a little bit more complicated. Who knew that things could be so complicated? <laughs> Who knew that healthcare could be so complicated? <laughs> I, I fear that in a few weeks or months, Donald Trump is going to start saying, who knew that negotiating with Kim Jong-un might turn out to be complicated? But because they don't want to admit, yeah, ring the bell. But because they don't want to admit that um, that they that their promises were too easy, they start to blame, and that's exactly what Orban did, and I think that's what Donald Trump is starting to do, right? So you have a rise of these people who have that imaginary of politics, right, and who refuse to acknowledge anybody who disagrees with them as a legitimate part of a political system, and you see that around the world, in Europe, in the year two thousand. 8% uh, of the vote went to populist parties on average. Now it's 25%. You can drive now from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Aegean Sea in Greece in the south of Europe and never leave a country ruled by populists. So why is this happening in all of these different places at the same time? Well, to explain that, um, and, and you'll have to bear with me here, I'm going to tell you the story of a chicken. It's a chicken on a farm, and it's the kind of chicken we'd all like to eat for dinner in nice places like uh, the Happy Dog, which is to say that it's free-range and organic, and you know, it gets to chat with all the other animals on the farm. <laughs> and all the other animals tell it, be careful, the farmer only seems nice. One day he's gonna, you know, turn you into chicken wings. <laughs> and the chicken says, what are you talking about? He's nice to me all the time. He sort of mutters some encouraging words. Um, he feeds me. Why should things suddenly be so different? Well, Bertrand Russell, who, who I'm stealing the story from, um, said in his nice dry wit that um, 
one day the ch farmer does come to wring the chicken's neck, demonstrating that more sophisticated views as to the uniformity of causation would have been to the chicken's benefit. What he means by that is that there are scope conditions to how the social world works. As long as the chicken was too thin for the market, the farmer had a reason to feed it. Once it was fat enough to fetch a good price, he had a reason to kill it. So that's the question we have to ask. And so you asked about, well, what about cultural change? What about migration? That's one of the big differences. There's others as well, which we should get to, but, but that's one of the big ones. When you look at Italy or Germany or Sweden in 1960, and you ask people there, what really makes somebody belong to your society? What makes a true Italian, a true German, a true Swede? The answer would have been pretty straightforward. It's somebody who is ethnically descended from the same stock, and somebody who's brown or black doesn't belong. Now, thankfully, that has changed over the course of 50 years of migration. The citizenship laws in these countries have changed. Some of the cultural notions of who belongs has changed as well. But there's now a big rebellion against that. People saying, hey, one second, we don't want to completely give up that notion. Right? Actually, we do want certain advantages to people who really come from this place. Now, the United States is both similar and different. It's different in that you've always had a multi-ethnic society in this country. There's always been people of many different races living in this country. It's always been a country of immigration. But it's similar in that one group, one ethnic and religious group, has always had big advantages over other groups in this country. Now let's remember that we've come a long way in overcoming that. It is undoubtedly better to be a member of an ethnic or religious or social or sexual minority in the United States today than it would have been 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. Perhaps not two years ago, but certainly 20 or 40 or 60 years ago. And we should celebrate that. But it shouldn't surprise us that some of the people who have real privileges to, you, to lose, who had advantages which in some ways were starting to have to give up, might be anxious about that transformation. And so what we have to do is to build an equal multi-ethnic society which has never existed before. And that's a really big challenge. I'd like to go back and play devil's advocate just for a minute. Uh, when you're comparing what President Trump says or tweets, um, let's for a minute say that he's just inarticulate. Let's just uh, say... I agree with that. Well, <laughs> let's say that there's no malice in that rhetoric. And isn't this a slippery slope to compare what he may tweet inarticulately with, you know, an, an Egyptian autocrat with a deep state supporting every single whim that they would want? Are, aren't we devaluing how bad actual autocracies are when we bring our own president's name into those discussions. So first of all, I didn't compare Donald Trump to uh, president or general, I should say, al-Sisi. It's, just, it's, just it's obvious that in, in Egypt we have a full-fledged dictatorship, and in the United States at this point we don't, thankfully. So that's obviously a difference. But to anybody who has studied the rise of democratically elected political leaders, who did turn their countries into soft autocracies, which, by the way, are still very different from Egypt. I mean, I would much rather live in Hungary today than I would live in Egypt. There's gradations there, too. Um, but they sound and look a lot like Donald Trump. In order to avoid the kind of drift to soft authoritarianism that you've seen in Hungary, you need to acknowledge that the opposition is legitimate. 
You need to say that you will be bound by the outcomes of elections. You need to respect the independence of institutions like the judiciary. And you need to have a modicum of respect for the press. You can criticize their coverage, but you can't threaten their independence. Now, it's not inarticulate. It is, I mean, it's maybe formulated in an inarticulate manner, but it's not inarticulate what Donald Trump is doing. He is systematically unwilling to accept limits on his power. And you see that when he says a newspaper with whom he has disagreements should register as lobbyists, which would absolutely undermine the independence. By the way, I disagree with the premise that all he does is tweet. He has fired the director of the FBI. He has had a deputy director of the FBI fired, Andrew McCabe, indirectly through his actions. If you are, answer me this question, if you are a mid-level FBI operative at the moment, and you're not particularly political, and you want to have a decent career, and you somehow, through whatever normal police work you're doing, happen to come into information that incriminates a member of a Trump family or an associate of a Trump family, do you treat that information in the same way as you would have done three years ago? Do you actually go through that investigation? Think of the proposed merger between AOL and Time Warner, which was vetoed by the Department of Commerce in a way that anybody who is an expert in this field said was incredibly unusual. Now, AOL happens, to, uh, Time Warner happens to own CNN. And Donald Trump, as we know, is a huge enemy of CNNs. If you're a businessman right now who has lots of different interests, do you buy a newspaper that might be critical of Donald Trump? If you own a newspaper that's critical of Donald Trump, do you exert a little bit of pressure on the newspaper not to be too critical of Donald Trump because you're worried about how the regulatory state might actually harm your other businesses, which are a much bigger part of your portfolio? To say that it's just words is ignoring the fact that the main thing that politicians do is influence what happens in the administration of justice, in the administration uh, of regulatory issues through their work. I guess my point in, in mentioning Egypt was just to take an extreme of, of a place with a deep state which reinforces those autocratic tendencies. Just because a United States president may reject that he has limits or say, I don't have limits, doesn't mean he doesn't have limits. And I guess that's, that's kind of the point that I want to get to is just because somebody says something doesn't make it true. Uh, and when we're talking about the, the fundamentals of, of our government I mean, look, Donald Trump might lose. But there's two different questions here. One question is, does he have deeply authoritarian instincts? The other question is, is he going to win? Now, I think on the first count, it's very obvious that he has deeply authoritarian instincts. Now, thankfully, and that in my mind makes him an authoritarian populist, and the best way of understanding what his political project is, is to look at what other authoritarian populists ended up doing. Now, here's a piece of good news. If there was a populist Olympics, Donald Trump would not make medal rank. <laughs> He'd be ambling into the goal way after people like Viktor Orban. Because they are more politically shrewd. Because they have a capacity for acting strategically because they avoid needless controversies and create the controversies that they actually want. For a while, people thought Donald Trump was playing three-dimensional chess, 
actually most of the time he seems to be playing zero-dimensional chess. So I absolutely agree that we might and hopefully we will beat back those attempts to undermine our institutions. But it's only if we understand the nature of a threat and it's only if we organize to defend against the threat that we're going to do that. If voters choose this president, a majority of voters, does that still mean he's a threat to the democracy which put him into office? A majority of voters chose Vladimir Putin. A majority of voters chose Viktor Orban. A majority of voters chose Recep Erdogan. I could mention others, but it's never helpful to mention certain others because those sound like two simplistic arguments. But history is full of people who were chosen democratically. If you think, you know, when we think about the downfall of democracy, the most obvious example to go to is the downfall of the Weimar Republic at the end of, or the beginning of the 1930s in Germany. But that comparison is really unhelpful because it cloaks a lot of things. Right? If you think that democracy only dies when there's people performing the Hitler salute, walking up and down the street with big black boots and carrying torches through the center of town, that is not true. In most places in which democracy has died, it is by people who've been democratically elected, and it is by people who say, I'm not against democracy, I just think the current political class is corrupt, and just, just, just trust me, just give me a little bit more power. Um, now, I think, and this is the argument I make in the book, that we live in a liberal democracy. And again, liberal here doesn't mean liberal and conservative. The liberal element means the protection of individual rights, the rule of law, the separation of powers. Why those things? Because they allow us to have individual freedom. They allow us to decide what we want to say or not say, the ways in which we want to worship or not worship, what other kinds of choices we want to make in our lives. The second element is the democratic element, which is actually translating popular views into public policies, the rule of the people, which means that the political system actually responds to us. So I want a political system that responds to both of those things, respects both of those values. We have collective self-rule, and we have individual freedom. My fear is that these two things are falling apart. So for a long time, we've had a political system which I would call rights without democracy, in which, yes, we've mostly respected the separation of powers. We've mostly respected the rule of law, but our political system hasn't been very responsive to what people want because of a huge role of money in politics, because of a revolving door between lobbyists and legislators, because of a rise of all kinds of institutions that take decisions in our stead, like independent central banks and so on and so forth. So I agree with you that it's a problem when the political system isn't responsive to people. And it's one of the reasons why you've had the rise of the inverse of that, which is democracy without rights, so illiberal democracy. And that's what I would call the populists, who, yes, often are democratically elected, yes, often have some amount of democratic legitimation, but who end up undermining individual rights and who end up attacking full front the separation of powers and the rule of law. So A, that is bad in itself, because we want a political system that has both. Our political system isn't supposed to institute the tyranny of a majority. But second, it's dangerous because over time, that system becomes unstable. Once you no longer have an independent press, once you no longer have courts 
that can stand up to violations of the Constitution. Once you no longer have independent institutions like the FBI or the Department of Justice, but rather politicized ones that prosecute your political adversaries on trumped up charges, you can no longer democratically remove from office somebody who has been democratically elected. And that is my fear. What is the, what is the recourse then for the voter? If, if you're saying that there's still a danger that when people are fed up with how things are going and they say, you know what, yeah, we'll take that guy. Um, I, I, what is the better choice? How do you function to change a system which appears to be against you or not working for you or you can't get ahead in any way? What, what's the option then? Well, so first of all, I think it is the job of more moderate political parties to do a better job of offering alternatives. Right. So one of the causes we haven't talked about, in the book I basically talk about three deep causes. One of them is identity and culture, which we've talked about a little bit. Uh, another is social media, which perhaps we'll have a chance to talk about later. But the third one is a stagnation of living standards for ordinary citizens. So look, from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of an average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. Since 1985, it's been stagnant, it's been flat. That makes a huge difference in how people think about the world. People used to say, you know what, I'm twice as rich as my parents were, my kids are going to be twice as rich as me. Do I love people in Washington, D.C.? Do I think that they're complete paragons of moral virtue? No. But they seem to be sticking to their end of a deal. So let's give them the benefit of a doubt. Now they're saying, I've worked hard all of my life. I don't have much to show for it. My kids are going to be worse off than me. Let's try something new. How bad could things get? So I get that instinct. And in order to counteract that instinct, we have to show that we can make life better for people, that there can be policies that ensure that corporations actually pay their fair share of tax, that rich individuals don't hide their money in Switzerland or in other tax havens, that we have housing policies that ensure that it's actually easy to build enough homes so that you don't have to spend a huge share of your salary in order to have a decent place to live. That we can invest in education and other things so that productivity rises and people actually have real growth in their incomes. We have to show that there are those alternatives. But one thing I think is very clear. Though it's understandable why people might be pissed off and why people might say, let's just break the system, how bad could things get? Things could get a whole lot worse. Look at Venezuela and the incredible collapse in their economy and the heartbreaking collapse in the economy that they've suffered in the last decades. Think of another populist who was a real estate billionaire with a penchant for sex scandals and a weird haircut. Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, who has ruled the country for nearly two decades, from the beginning of the 90s to the beginning of 2010s, and the country has not grown at all during those years because of a lot of corruption, because of a lot of economic stagnation, because he handed out huge presents to his cronies rather than doing something for ordinary people. So I get the hurt, I get the anger, but the record of populists around the world shows that they're not going to actually address the reasons behind that anger. I'd like to open it up for your questions. We've only glanced the surface of this topic, but if there's something you want to ask, please come on up to the microphone. Um, I'm actually going to ask the first question. This was from Facebook. A friend of mine wanted me to ask you. 
His, his question was kind of extreme, but he said, are, are we suffering from too much democracy? Are we suffering from an uneducated uh, electorate which is giving us bad choices, bad selections after, after elections? So there's a very good essay by Andrew Sullivan that argues more or less the same thing, but I disagree. Um, there's a solution to this, which people like Farid Zakaria also advocate, which is to say, you know, the thing that really matters is that the system delivers. The thing that really matters is that um, we don't degenerate into the tyranny of majority. So what if experts make all the decisions? What if technocrats make all the decisions? I think that's fine. I think that's wrong in a couple of ways. The first is that it's naive to think that people will never um, rule in their own interests. That if you let a class of educated, highly skilled people make decisions, they will skew decisions so that they're responsive to the interests of other people like them, and less responsive to uh, people who are not like them. The second thing is that it violates one of the key ambitions of our political system. What we promise to people is, yes, individual freedom, but also collective self-rule. We promise people that the majority is not going to tell them what to say and how to worship, but we also promise them that we together as citizens can actually make decisions about how we want to live and what our politics should look like. And if we give up on that ambition, I think we give up on, on a key notion of what our political system and frankly of what America is. Mm -hmm. First question, please. To what extent do you think that uh, alt news um, is really destroying or undermining traditional news that's edited properly? Thank so, you. I think it's helpful to think about that more broadly in the context of the rise of the internet and of social media. 25 years ago, you had a system of political communication which was in some ways not so dissimilar to what you would have seen a couple of centuries ago, which seems like a puzzling claim because you could have live uh, uh, pictures and sound transported all around the world, uh, live, in a matter of seconds. Um, but you still had one-to-many communication, which means a set of people in the big urban centers who owned newspapers or radio stations or television stations who broadcast their ideas to everybody out in the periphery. And either you had to own one of those institutions or you had to be given access to speak on one of those institutions in order to have a real voice. Well, through the internet that changed because suddenly everybody could make a website, joeblogs.com, that could be read for free by billions of people around the world. And social media changed it even more because you still had to go and find joeblogs.com, whereas now you can have a Twitter feed with 100 followers. And if you capture a particularly captivating video, if you say something particularly striking, that tweet can be seen by millions of people in a matter of a couple of hours. And what that does is on one side, empower some important voices that have been marginalized before that the mainstream media didn't want to feature. But it also obviously makes it possible for people who have hateful views, for people who want to spread fake news, to have a real stake in our political debate. Technology is a relatively neutral means. It can be used for good, it can be used for ill. But because the rise of the internet and of social media came at the same time, 
as we already had this deep frustration of the economic stagnation and these anxieties about cultural change, that became a very dangerous mix, a very dangerous cocktail. And so yes, I think it is very worrying that you now have a technological means for spreading absolute lies, conspiracy theories, the most hateful kind of content. But I think it's only having the corrosive effect it has because there are these other factors that are making Americans lose trust in their institutions and become willing to indulge in hateful views. Next question. My question is, uh, even though the U.S. does have a democracy, our democracy is really different than a lot of European countries and that a third party would never be able to really take hold of any, any part of our government. Um, so while like, you're saying that the U.S. should be responsive to the will of the people, the will of the people officially was to elect Hillary Clinton. Um, so can you talk a little about how we maybe should change and maybe how our form of democracy should, in some ways, die? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so look, I mean, there's a couple, there's a set of common sense reforms that, that we could make. Uh, one of them that's quite promising is that if enough states, obviously no state wants to do it on its own, but there's a, a set of bills um, pending from the state legislature saying that as long as a sufficient number of other states also does this, they will start to accord the winner of uh, their electoral votes for the electoral college on a proportional basis. So that doesn't require a change of a constitution because states decide how to apportion their electoral votes. And if enough states did that, we could actually effectively end up with a, a, a system that tracks a popular vote. There's also ways of uh, trying to fight gerrymandering which is a, a very real problem, which makes our political systems less competitive um, and contributes to the polarization of Congress. It contributes to the reasons why Republican congressmen right now are more scared of the primaries in many cases than they are of a general election. So absolutely there's things in our political system that needs change and updating and there's common sense ways of doing all of those things. Now where I don't agree is that this is going to solve the deeper roots of a problem because um, you know, political scientists for the last 50 years have grown up with this idea that institutions really matter. It's one of those academic trends. For a while, political scientists didn't think much about institutions, so now every senior political scientist is all about institutions. <laughs> but it strikes me that when you look at the rise of populism around the world, political institutions don't seem to be that helpful and explanatory variable. Because you have populists in systems of proportional representation, you have populists in majoritarian systems. You have populists in parliamentary systems, in semi-presidential systems, and in presidential systems. No matter how your polity is set up, some of the drivers that I've talked about, economic stagnation, cultural change, social media, are powerful enough to propel those political forces, and they somehow find a way of breaking through, no matter what the exact rules and institutions. So yes, there's important changes we can make, but ultimately, we can only deal with that populist threat by solving some of the underlying drivers of the anger. Hmm. Next question. Yeah. Uh, this isn't my question, but since you teed this up so nicely, we in Ohio have an opportunity to vote on a gerrymandering uh, measure in the May ballot, um, ballot issue one. So uh, please inform yourself about this. I don't think there's an organized opposition, but um, I don't want to be wrong on this one. So my actual question is, um, 
I've been struggling with the extent to which Trump represents a degree of difference or a degree of kind. And um, David Frum got a fair amount of play for his essay in The Atlantic, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, How to Build an Autocracy. And many of the examples he gives involve um, how corporate um, power can be limited, sort of assuming that corporate power is our friend. But I think you could make the opposite case quite effectively, um, and that changes the landscape. And in fact, then sort of talking about Trump being a difference of kind just lets us off the hook for bad political behavior since sometime in the mid-'80s when the economy changed tremendously and arguably has led mm -hmm. to the dissatisfaction that we have at many rungs in society. So I wanted to um, interject that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think the difference, the question about whether it's a difference in kind or a difference in quality is is, is really important. Um, and it's important to be careful here, right? I mean, America has never been perfect. And though we once had a relatively widespread consensus about the nature of our institutions, those institutions have also always excluded a lot of people. And we're now probably better at including people especially African-Americans, especially certain sexual minorities, in our institutions than we have been in the past. At the same time, the nature of a threat to our institutions has increased. So there are different kinds of ills. The nature of the ill has changed over time. That's one way of answering this question. The other thing is that, obviously, there is never you know, complete way of adhering to the political rules and norms. We've had gerrymandering for a long time. The word actually comes from a case in which Democrats gerrymandered. Uh, in the last decades, Republicans have probably been more guilty of it, but it's not something that's new. You see um, some very worrying attempts at undermining the principle that you're actually bound by the nature of elections, even in Republican parties that don't have a strong affiliation with Donald Trump. So the most shocking example of this to me was the gubernatorial election in North Carolina in 2016, in which the Democratic candidate narrowly won, and the outgoing Republican legislature that wouldn't have had that majority anymore once it reconstituted itself, voted to restrict the job description of a governor in extreme ways. That is a very shocking assault on some of the basic rules and norms of our political system. It wasn't done by Trump. It was done by sort of relatively traditional GOP politicians. So. There absolutely are some continuities. But I still think that the extent to which somebody today says, I'm going to leave people in suspense about the outcome of the election. My political adversary should be locked up. I think that the outcome of the election is fraudulent even though I won it. I'm going to make up lies about having won the popular vote by three million votes that, that are completely made up. I think all of that is genuinely new. I also think it's genuinely new for somebody to not just say, hey, I think the opposition is stupid and sometimes bad and I'm much better than them. Right? That's normal part of politics. Every presidential candidate has done something like that. But we attempt to say, no, the adversary of the political opposition are traitors. They're un-American, as the chairwoman of a GOP tweeted a couple of days ago. I really think they hate America, she tweeted. I really think that's something new. Look back to 2008. In the last days of a presidential campaign, John McCain was doing a town hall event. And a woman in the audience stood up and said, 
Barack Obama is an Arab and he's a dangerous man and I'm scared of what's going to become to America, what's going to become of America if he gets elected. And John McCain, to his great credit, said, look, I want to win. I think I'd make a much better president than Barack Obama. I think we have some big differences of policy and I think my policies are better. But you know what? Barack Obama is an honorable man. And if he becomes president of his country, you don't have to be afraid. Can you imagine Donald Trump saying something like that? <laughs> but that is an important distinction. I mean, <laughs> let's move on to the next question. <laughs> So um, I'm 72, and I figure that I'll probably live another 10 years. And I also think Much I uh, would prefer not to live another 10 years under Trumpism. So what should I be doing? <laughs> Well, that's not an uh, easy act to follow. Um, <laughs> ring the bell. Um, I think there's a lot we can do. Um, there's a lot we can do in the short run. There's a lot we can do in the long run. Um, in the short run, look, I, it is absolutely essential. And I really believe that um, not just because of whatever my views on, 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 on health policy might be, but because as a political scientist and somebody who has studied the rise of populists in different parts of the world, um, I see that it is really important to have institutional checks on populists. When they have absolute majorities, when they don't have other parts of the system that actually can check them, it is very dangerous. In countries like Hungary, at the first time that populists ran for re-election, the opposition retained a good chance of beating them. Not quite a fair chance, but a good chance. By the second or third time they were running for re-election, they had gerrymandered the system, they had undermined the system in such ways that it was very, very difficult for the opposition to come within striking distance of winning. And so given that the congressional GOP has proven unwilling to do its job, that the Constitution demands, of actually checking the power of an aberrant executive, it is absolutely essential that Democrats win back either the House or the Senate in the midterm election. And given that Donald Trump has shown himself to be incapable of recognizing the distinction between a political adversary and political enemy, given that he has undermined our most basic democratic, democratic rules and norms in the way he has, it is, in my opinion, absolutely essential to beat him in 2020. Now, I spend a lot of time in places like Washington, D.C., that doesn't even have a vote, and Massachusetts, that votes for the same way every election anyway. You all are sitting in Ohio. <laughs> so there's things you can do, very straightforwardly. But we also have to go beyond that. We have to actually fight to overcome the structural drivers of this. Because you know what? I'm going to take you in a macabre way for a moment at your word and say that, you know, what's going to happen in 10 years? I, 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 like you, I disagree with the premise of a question, but 
where we're going to be in 10 years. I think there's a pretty good chance that in 10 years things are looking all right. I think there's a good chance that in 2020 Donald Trump loses and that we go back to normal for four or eight or 12 years. But I'll tell you what, if we don't deal with the underlying drivers of these kinds of politics, it's going to come back. And it might come back in the form of somebody who isn't going to be place 17 in the populist Olympics. America is a talented country. You can find a talented populist in this country. And if you find somebody who could actually take the bronze or the silver or the gold medal, then it would look very different from what you see right now. Think of how popular Donald Trump would be right now and how consolidated his hold over the Republican Party and over other parts of our political system if it weren't for the constant tweets, if it weren't for Stormy Daniels, if it weren't for all of the needless distractions. That's pretty frightening. So if you want to deal with that long-term threat, you have to actually show that moderate parties can deliver for people, that can get, give people the sense that they can take back control over their own lives, so the nation can stand up tall in the age of globalization. We have to fight for an inclusive patriotism, which means that we must stand up without reservation and without footnote to the exclusive nationalism and the white nationalism of parts of the administration, defending minorities that are currently under attack. And at the same time, we need to resist the temptation that I now see in large parts of the left of saying, let's give up on nationalism altogether. Because as we've seen in the last decades, nationalism is a very powerful force. And if you leave it to its own devices, it's like a half-domesticated animal. If you leave it to its own devices, the worst kinds of people are going to come in and stoke it and bait it until it runs wild. Most of those people are called Steve. Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, and so on. <laughs> so instead of allowing them to do that, we have to actually fight to determine the meaning of nationalism. And say, so, yes, we are proud to be American. And by the way, of course, that means that somebody who's an immigrant can also be American. That somebody who's brown or black can also be American. That somebody who's Hindu or Muslim or Jewish can also be an American. So that's, I think, an important thing we can do. And the third thing we can do is to actually stand up for our political values. We talk a lot about what's wrong with America. And that's easy when you look at the news. And it's easy when you look at some of the most structural injustices we've had for a long time as well. But you know what? There's a lot that is right with America. Being a citizen of the United States at the moment is not like being a subject of military rule in Egypt. Mm -hmm. We still have the liberty to stand up for our values. And we still have the liberty to say that, yes, there are certain basic political values that are instantiated in our constitutional system and that we want to defend. So let's do that, and let's actually transmit our values from one generation to the next. Your question. Uh, first of all, I don't think you understand the difference between democracy and the constitutional republic, or between populism and communism. But my first question will be, are you at all concerned that many of our leading institutions, such as the FBI, the CIA, and the left-wing media, have refused to accept that Donald Trump was elected according to the Constitution by the American people, and I believe a majority of uh, live people and those who weren't wetbacks. And I believe, yes, yes, I believe he was elected. 
yes. David, you and I yes. have talked about yes, this. Yes, I know. There's yes. no need yes. for that. Please, mm -hmm. please don't use yes. hateful speech. It's please not hateful. It's it the is. truth. It's the damn truth. David, sir. And thank sir. God we have a president who's sir, courageous sir, enough sir. to tell it. Okay. Yes. Okay, you can't use language like that here. You oh, can't, I, okay. I have a few more okay, questions. No, you have one question, and you got your one question. Thank you. I, I think we've recognized that um, Donald Trump was elected. Um, do you think that uh, there is some sort of effort to delegitimize that election, or is, is there opposition to what he's done uh, since that election was completed to try to pull something out of that question? So I, I think that's a very important question, right? Look, I mean, there are many different grounds on which to disagree with Donald Trump. And some of those are normal grounds of public policy, and some of those are grounds of constitutional, to cite a word in the question, principle. I disagree with Donald Trump's decision, strongly disagree with Donald Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Accord. But he is our democratically elected president, and he can make that decision. I am going to argue against it. I'm going to say, some of the ways in which I think that's wrong, that's part of my right as an American citizen, but, but that is a legitimate thing for him to do. I strongly disagree with some of the things in the tax reform, but that's something that another Republican president might in one way or another have done as well. And I'm gonna argue about that, but I'm gonna accept the legitimacy of doing that. But when a president starts to undermine freedom of speech, freedom of the press, when he starts to undermine the independence of institutions like the FBI or the Department of Justice. That is not a matter of legitimate political difference. That is a matter of a president overstepping the bounds of his legitimate authority and endangering our political system that we need precisely for me to be willing to let him rule, which is to say that the most important thing about our political system is that I can hate what the guy on the other side of a political divide is doing but recognize that he's been legitimately elected and let him do some of those things. Why? Because I'm going to have a fair chance four years from now to vote him out of office and to win the debate through political means. But when somebody starts to attack the freedom of the press, when somebody starts to put political pressure on institutions like the FBI and the Department of Justice, I can no longer put trust in that. And so he's undermining the very basis we have for resolving political difference in peaceful ways. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it dangerous. Thank you. Tony, uh, will yeah. you just allow a brief public service announcement? Sure. Um, we, at the City Club, I just want to clarify, we're deeply supportive of freedom of speech. But uh, when it comes to hate speech, we draw a very clear line. So I just want to make sure everybody understands that. Thank you. I hope we gave a... I hope we gave a fair hearing to uh, one of the points in there. But uh, next question, please. I was just wondering if it, currently are there uh, any nations where that elect their leaders by their individual vote and where they're not uh, a part of a, a grouped in labeled group conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republic, um, so without parties? Can, with, yeah, and mm. can vote, can vote basically just on the issues or mm. what they... Thank you. So look, this is one of the 
puzzling things about our constitutional system and about many other constitutional systems in the world as well, which is that when you look at the US Constitution, the word party, or even at the Federalist Papers, the word party doesn't appear in it. They might talk about factions and other kinds of things, but they don't think about political parties because they're trying to prevent the arrival of those political parties. And yet political parties in virtually any democratic system, I would say actually in every democratic system that I know of, um, have become a big structural part of a political system. Why? Because people aren't that politically involved. Because we now live in very big communities, so it's not like, you know, there's a thousands of us in Cleveland, we know, all know each other, and we can say, you know, Dan seems like a good guy, why don't we go and send him to represent our interests? And so you need these political parties to structure ideological disagreement, to give people these sort of cognitive shortcuts, so that they're like, well, I don't really know that much about this guy, but, you know, he's a Republican, and I've always trusted Republicans, so that's who I'm going to vote for, right? Now, the question is, how do we prevent that partisanship from becoming so deep that it gets dangerous. The idea that the Founding Fathers had of increasing the scope of a country and the number of factions you were going to have is precisely that it would be very dangerous if there's two factions and they oppose each other. They wanted to have lots and lots and lots of factions because then no one faction can think, I'm going to have a majority, and then you would have to compromise. Well, now we do have two factions, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And we see, for example, this is absolutely astounding. The social scientists did a test where they had people you know, come into the lab and say, oh, you have to decide who gets this fellowship, who gets this scholarship. And they varied two different things. And one of them, they varied the race of a candidate. And it turns out that white people slightly preferred the white candidate, and black people slightly preferred the black candidate. On the other, they varied the political affiliation of a candidate. So they you know, made up these fictional CVs in which they had been the president of a you know, college democratic association or the president of a college Republicans. Democrats hugely favored people who were Democrats and Republicans hugely favored people who were Republicans. So at least on that one measure, the political partisanship divide now is deeper than the racial divide. So that is very worrying. That's very concerning. The moment it becomes really concerning, though, is precisely when you stop thinking of the people on the other side. I mean, that's what we're stuck with. I, I have trouble thinking of how we got to get out of that. But when it becomes deeply concerning is when you're not saying, hey, I'm part of my political tribe. You know, I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I think people on my side of the debate are better and so on. That, that's fine. It's not great, but it's fine. But when you say, and the other people, they're not just wrong about economic policy. We're not just wrong about this and that. They are evil. We cannot let them rule. That is when it becomes really dangerous. And let me make very clear that that is not what I think. I would love to have a Republican Party that respects the basic rules and norms of the political system. In fact, I don't think we're going to go back to a healthy democracy unless we have a Republican Party that reforms itself in that way. And for I personally might not vote for a candidate of that party, I would be overjoyed at this point to have somebody like John McCain or Mitt Romney be in the office of President of the United States. So this is not about those political differences. It's about having people who say, I disagree with you, but we agree on the basic rules of a political system. Thank you. Next question. Uh, first off, I want to thank you gentlemen for an engaging discussion tonight. This was fantastic.
Thanks for coming. My, my question is, Yasha, you, you mentioned earlier that President Trump is not as politically shrewd as some of these other autocrats that we've seen rising. And I, I think that was an important point. And I think to Turkey with Tayyip Erdogan, President Trump and, and Erdogan are very similar in their rhetoric, but we've seen Tayyip Erdogan be so successful in his dismantling of Turkish democracy because of his complete and total control of the ru ruling party there. Uh, that's allowed him to uh, jail journalists and continue a state of emergency and so on. Um, absent that kind of political control over the Republican Party, uh, is there any sort of way that the United States can fall down a similar path? And, and if they can't fall down a similar path and the United States comes out of this moment, uh, what can and should the United States do to try and reverse some of this democratic backsliding in countries like Turkey or Hungary or Poland? Thank you. It's a great question. Um, well, a, a few thoughts. I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey. Um, just one note of caution that I would sound is that it doesn't feel to me like Donald Trump is successfully following in Erdogan's footsteps right now. I don't think he is. That's my considered judgment as well. But when you look at what Turkish papers were writing, when you look at what European papers were writing, when you look at what the New York Times and Washington Post were writing about Turkey about two years after Erdogan took power there, it was mostly praise. The idea was that Erdogan was bringing a sort of Muslim form of Christian democracy to Turkey, reconciling the country of some of its religious believers and actually deepening democracy there. Well, that turned out to be very wrong. And so I just want to caution us that a couple of years into people like that taking power, it's not always obvious how corrosive they're going to be. Um, now, having said that, I, I agree with you that we'll probably get through this at least in the short run. And that then raised the questions I was talking about earlier about how to actually combat that in the long run. Um, and so to me, that means offering people more economic opportunity, fighting for an equal multi-ethnic society, and actually spreading our values, actually teaching civics in high schools, for example, which is something we barely do anymore. But another big question is, how can the United States go back to actually supporting democracies around the world? You brought up, I, I imagine, the Egyptian president in part because of his elections there recently. And of course, Vic, Donald Trump phoned him up to congratulate him on his electoral victory. The week before, he phoned up Vladimir Putin to congratulate him on his electoral victory. I have no doubt that next Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, he will phone up Viktor Orban to congratulate him on his great electoral victory. That is one of the few ways in which Donald Trump actually is a lot like other democratic political leaders. Angela Merkel has done the same thing, at least in the Russian case. Fidesz, the party of Viktor Orban, still sits in the European Parliament as part of a European People's Party to which Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Party also belongs. So this is a matter not just of Donald Trump, but of much more mainstream political leaders like Angela Merkel actually standing up for their democratic values and recognizing that we do live in an age of authoritarian resurgence. Are we going to have to get serious about standing up for our values? Which doesn't mean, by the way, but you never negotiate. It doesn't mean that you don't have certain forms of respect for other countries. 
part of what it is to be a statesman is that sometimes you have to go and sit and smile over dinner with people who are pretty terrible. That's fine. That's part of world politics. We can't wish that away. But you can deal with them from a position of strength and from a position of principle. And what Donald Trump, but also people like Angela Merkel have been failing to do, is that. I'll give you a very small example. At the Munich Security Conference, it was a big sort of annual gathering of politicians and so on, the Turkish Prime Minister, not Erdogan, but Yildirim, his, his, his sort of second in command, came to speak. And when his security guards were put up in the same hotel as a leading German politician of uh, Turkish extraction, Cem Özdemir, when they saw him, and he had sometimes criticized Erdogan, they threatened him in such ways that the German police concluded that they might actually beat him up. They were actually scared for his safety. What do they do? What should they do? I don't know. They could have jailed these bodyguards for issuing threats. They could have expelled them from the country. They could have, at the very least, have given the necessary protection to the German politician, Stamir, so that he can go about his day. Instead, they told him, we can't protect you. Can you please not have breakfast in your own hotel? This is a German politician in a fancy German hotel in the center of Munich, not being protected by German police from the violent fucks of a dictator. That's not standing up for your values. We also did an event on Turkey, if you're interested, shameless plug. Uh, we talked about the European Union trying to incentivizing to incentivize Turkey to move toward more liberal democracy, but Russia swooping in and kind of writing in a check without any um, strings attached. So, if you're interested. Next question. Yeah. Uh, sorry, this question actually begins with the presumption, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> It depends on the nature of a presumption. <laughs> uh, so, the media is known to lambast those who are willing to compromise with the other side of the aisle. Uh, which arguably could lead to a rule by majority as opposed to compromise that the Constitution was founded on. So what are your thoughts on the role of the media in that process and the stalemate of the legislature? And also, uh, if I get your thoughts on the way that stalemate has led to an increase in the concentration of the power in the executive, uh, which arguably started with Lincoln, but was also flourished under Barack Obama. So I, I'm not sure that I quite caught the question, but do you have a, so, um, so I mean, I think that the role of a press, you know, is obviously to, to both be a counterweight and to inform, right? Um, and, and, and I do think that there is a tendency in the press, which is natural, to, to become tribal as well. Right, and at a moment when the press is under such real and concerted attack, that tendency becomes especially strong. So you know, I write a weekly column for Slate, and in the same way in which I try very hard to call balls and strikes between this is a legitimate pol policy difference, whereas this is an actual attack on our institutions, I also try to call balls and strikes between you know this is a moment in which. Um, we actually should strive for some amount of unity and so on, and this is a moment when, when legitimately we, we are shrilling the alarm, sounding the alarm. Um, and that's a very important function, I think, right? To, to, to start to build towards 
the terms under which we can actually have a healthy political debate again. I you know, find myself talking at the moment a lot to thoughtful conservatives and, and Republicans. I have a podcast called The Good Fight, which, shameless plug, I invite you to listen to. And one of the people I had on recently, for example, is David French, who is uh, you know, deeply conservative, deeply evangelical, pro-gun rights, writer for the National Review. I disagree with him on all kinds of things in the world. But he's a very thoughtful man who generally believes in the principles of our Constitution. And the way I think about him is that I would love to go back to a political moment in which he's my adversary. I would love to go back and every article I write can be taking bone with him and arguing all of the ways in which I think he's wrong. But right now, the rules by which both David and I agree to play are under attack. So right now, we are building a coalition to stand up for those rules in the hope not that we're going to get over politics and there'll never be partisanship again in the United States and we'll never disagree with each other again. It's good to disagree. It's good to have some amount of partisanship. It's in the hope that we can go back to actually seeing each other as the main adversaries, but respectfully so. I could do a whole event on the media, but uh, I'll just say that uh, we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt anymore in our discussions. There's all of this dehumanizing, which you've been talking about. Yep. And even if you disagree on politics, uh, you can still agree on your basic right to exist and that you have a viewpoint and we can discuss. Uh, and that's something that I've tried to do throughout my career and so far it's worked pretty well uh, that I can get people to answer the phone. And I think if we can get, I mean, that's a big deal for a journalist, right? Uh, and I think if we did that on a human level that we get each other to answer the phone a little more often, maybe we'd be better off in the long run. You know? so, so, so two thoughts here. One is that, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one is that, you know, to, to some of the people more on my side of the aisle, you know, if you think that the New York Times is a white supremacist organization, as a lot of people on my Twitter feed like to claim, you don't understand what white supremacy is, and you don't understand what some of the people who actually are way out are saying and arguing, right? So you need to be able to tolerate disagreement within your own side of a political spectrum without immediately saying that because some disagrees on an important matter, they are evil or they are Nazis. David French, actually, when he was on my podcast, told this great story, um, which I think was very telling, where he said, you know, he's in the green room. He does a lot of, you know, cable TV and so on. And, you know, he has a pleasant chat with this guy who has, who has political disagreements with, but, you know, how are your kids and how have you been? How's your wife? You know, pleasant, you know, friendly interaction. The camera lights turn on, and the guy just denounces him. You know, I mean, really tears into him in just like a nasty manner, right? Really like, David, you know, you're a bad person, you know. The lights go out, the segment is over, and the guy turns to him and says, that was good television, wasn't it? <laughs> and that tells you something, that in a way, 
the way that, that, that David French put it is that, you know, at least with the World Wrestling Federation, we know that it's fake. But we have a set of TV news where people sort of shout at each other and make each other out to be the devil, which has a similar sort of air of spectacle and exaggeration and so on, but people watching don't know that these people actually get along. They think they really think of each other as the devil. And that's very dangerous because that precisely is eroding our difference to be civil across political differences. And that's why on my podcast, I have people on from all sides of a political spectrum. But I try to precisely build, look, David French and I discuss you know, heated issues on the podcast, but we try to do it in a way where we model, where we can have all these disagreements and yet be civil with each other, and yet agree that we want to be governed by the rules of the United States Constitution. Next question, thank you. Actually, that works very well with this question, because what I have noticed lately is people who support Donald Trump um, who are uncomfortable with kind of the direction in his rhetoric have, I've talked with them and they're increasingly saying, well, all politicians lie. And so it's, it's not only the fake news in our opposition politically, but that erosion of what is truth and what is not truth and how do we combat that because the minute I say he's not telling the truth, it's no longer, it's shifting sands. And then the other part of this is really a comment on if this current escalation of the border wall is not like Nazi Germany and I'm under threat, so I'm gathering the peoples to side with me. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Uh, look, you're absolutely right that we need to preserve a common basis for rational political debate. And that requires having common standards of truth and evidence. Um, and that, by the way, can be a problem, just to repeat that, for left-wing populists as much as right-wing populists, right? I mean, certainly in Venezuela, the official narrative was that Hugo Chavez died because the CIA had infected him with cancer. That was the official narrative, and a lot of people in the country believe it. In the United Kingdom, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, has a huge problem with anti-Semitism in his party. He himself has made comments that are closely bordering on anti-Semitism in the past, defended deeply anti-Semitic artworks, and so on and so forth. But when you look at what his supporters are saying, that is all fake news invented to smear their great political leader. Right? So. I would say that right now in the United States, that threat comes particularly from one side, but we see in many parts of a country that it can come from both sides. And I see the temptation on parts of the left to say, we'll just, we can say whatever we want that's right because we have God on our side, right? We are on the side of angels. We are actually fighting the good political fight, so let's be a little loose with the truth. And we need to avoid that. Look, um, if you want to play a game of basketball and you know you have your guys who are going to go up on the court and the other team turns up with their guys who are going to go up on the court and suddenly they also have 20 guys with baseball bats in town who threaten to beat you up what are you going to do what are you going to do 
if you just take to the court, they're going to beat you up with the baseball bats, and you're going to lose. You're going to be deeply hurt. So that doesn't seem like a great cause of action. But if you go and get your own 20 guys with baseball bats, you're sure not going to be playing basketball. And so that's a deep problem, right? It's easy to ridicule the line that Michelle Obama said in the campaign, when they go low, we go high, especially after the election. <laughs> but the truth is that if you also go low, then you no longer have any standards for tru of truth. You no longer have anybody disagreeing on the basic rules and norms of our political system. And that's not a solution either. Um, say a quick word before we close it, before Tony closes mm -hmm. it out. Um, Yashimank, uh, we're deeply grateful for you coming here tonight. The book is for sale over here, thanks to our friends at a cultural exchange. And Yasha has promised to um, sign as many copies as you buy. That was the deal that we struck. Um, he also promises to eat whatever hot dog you buy for him. So <laughs> anyway, um, but anyway, thank you both very much. Tony, you can close can it I out. I want to hog the microphone one more time for, for one minute. Because sometimes when I talk, people tell me that, that I'm very depressing. <laughs> which I hope you don't think, but you might, because this is a depressing topic. So, so I just want to say that I'm not depressed by this. I'm frightened in certain ways, but I'm also energized. Because unlike the citizens of Egypt and Venezuela and Russia and all of those places, we still retain the liberty to go and fight for our political values. I went to a talk uh, a, a few years ago by a great, um, a few months ago by a great novelist Amos Oz, who said there's a big fire raging. And all we have is a little glass of water in front of us, or in this case, a glass of uh, blood orange cider, which is surprisingly good. <laughs> and so, you know, if we pour that on the fire, what difference is that going to make? It's a huge fire, a little glass of water, it's not going to make a difference. But there's a bunch of us here, and thank you all for coming out. Um, and there's a bunch of people you all know and can talk to and inspire. And we all take our glass of water and pour it in the fire, and together we might just be able to put it out. Now, if you agree with some of my analysis, you have some ideas about what to do, there's more in the book. If you disagree with some of my ideas, you'll have your own ideas about what to do. But as long as you think that you want to live in a country that has individual rights and that has collective self-rule, I think it's your duty and my duty to go and fight for our values. It's a perfect way to close. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you, Yasha. Thank you.